The Tragedy of Cinema podcast is intended as a family-friendly program that by extension strives to be inclusive to all people regardless of their ethnicity, gender, creed, or any other identifying factors in this incredibly diverse world of ours. With that said, some of the films we discuss may contain serious subject matters or have content considered morally objectionable by today's standards. We do not intend to condone or dismiss these aspects of these films, but our primary focus will be on what we believe our film succeeds at, some fun facts, and our personal enjoyment factors of each film. With that said, we hope you enjoy the show. Attachments allow nothing to be in your life that you cannot walk out on in 30 seconds flat if you spot the heat around the corner. In the city of Los Angeles. Recognize the MO? MO is that they're good. If you think these guys are scoring more than passing through, I doubt it. A relentless police detective is on the trail. Of a master thief. You're fugitive number one with a bullet. It's double the risk here. You're wrong. It's four times the risk, and I'm double the worst trouble you ever had. Clear! And his reckless partner. The bank is worth the risk. We should take it down. I want full surveillance. 24 hours, round the clock. We never close open seven days a week. Assume they got our phones. Assume they got our houses. Assume they got us. Bam. Bye-bye. They get more daring with every score. What's the estimate? 12.2 million. You're up. But one cop. He's here. I can feel it. Is closing in. Whatever score they're going to take next, they're going to have the surprise of a lifetime. Now, for the first time, Academy Award winner Al Pacino and Academy Award winner Robert De Niro collide. If I'm there and I gotta put you away, I'll tell you, you are going down. What if you do got me boxed in and I gotta put you down? Because no matter what, you will not get in my way. I will not hesitate for a second. Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, Val Kilmer, in a Michael Mann film. Heat. All right, guys, welcome back to the Tragedy of Cinema podcast. I'm your host, Jimbo. I'm Kyle. And if you're ready for the juice, I'm here for the action. <laughs> Kyle. The juice is the action. Um, today we will be discussing for episode 152 um, one of the heist dramas, Heat, from 1995. I was a junior in high school, maybe a senior, depending on when it came out. I was two. <laughs> Thanks, Kyle. <laughs> For once again reminding me how old I am and how young I am. <laughs> uh, but Kyle, before we get started, as always, I have a question for you. 
I would never rob a bank. Who do you think had or has the more uh, illustrious career? Al Pacino or Robert De Niro? Robert De Niro. That's what I'm going to put down there. Um, why? That's a good question. I don't have a great answer for you. Um, but Robert De Niro was in the Meet the Parents trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> of all so his clearly, movies, you bring he's up the better Meet actor. the Parents. <laughs> Uh, um, <laughs> no, no. So what would, you, what would you say Al Pacino's greatest work is he's done And what would you say Robert De Niro's greatest work That he's done that does not meet the parents uh, Gosh Are you putting Scarface up there I'm th- I'm thinking The Godfather for Al Pacino Or maybe a personal favorite that might be um, Sin of the Woman though personally um, Robert De Niro Best work by him That's I'm going to look down here Um Maybe Raging Bull actually might be his best work, which is kind of maybe a little bit um, rude considering that's one of his earlier works too. Um, but Taxi Driver also iconic in many ways, and there's just a whole lot of Robert De Niro movies that are really solid. Same thing Al Pacino; they both had illustrious careers, and it's kind of hard to make the comparison because, like, really they're just, they're just at the same level of film heights, often crossing over with each other in many films. Well, yeah. this is the first time um, that they have actually shared scenes in a movie. Yeah. Is this movie? But since then, they've also but, a lot of films. But the yeah. first movie they were actually in together was uh, Godfather Part Two. Two but right, because yeah. of the time, I don't want to say time travel. The different uh, uh, time points, periods. Yeah. Thank you. Um, they they never shot a scene together. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is a scene in this movie which, uh, at some point in here, when I start talking about it, I'm going to try to add it in here because it sums up the whole movie. Because you have these two guys that are basically the same person. Um, one's good, one's bad, if you will. One's a cop, one's a robber, if you will. Yeah, yeah. That way. Um, but this is going to be a long episode, if not a two-parter. Uh, just the cast alone is so... It's amazing. Um, so, Kyle, uh, we don't want to waste any more time. Let's just go ahead and jump right on into it. Jump into it. We shall, Jimbo. And like I said, this is a... A big movie with a huge cast, so inevitably I'm probably going to just do a disservice to some of the cast members. Hopefully, I'll try to avoid as many as possible. But uh, no, yeah, not just, avoid cast members. No, 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 no uh, avoid <laughs> uh, doing them a misservice by including them here because like so many of them appeared in a ton of movies, and, and not only that, but um, there's so many that have small uh, I think roles. I, right, there's like four pages we cut of the cast because. Um, we don't want to um, belittle their role in this movie either because it is such a great movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but these are the ones that stood out and had m- yeah, yeah. more of a major part in this yeah. film. And this is probably a film like it's full of also like of like character actors, which is the thing probably not in film as much as now is as it was once you know twenty years ago now. But like you know character actors who appeared in a ton of films playing the same kind of characters over and over again because that's what they were you know mainly known as. So it has a ton of them as well, and they're all worth mentioning. But once again, it's just like there's so many here that I would be here for like half an hour just doing the cast list alone i might still be here for a while doing the cast list alone because there's just so many characters here but yeah let's just jump right into it heat released on december 15th of 1995 so i was a senior in high school yeah yeah Uh, a group of high-end professional thieves start to feel the heat from the lapd when they're unknowingly leave a clue to their latest heist directed by michael uh, directed and written by michael mann uh michael mann of films like um collateral muhammad ali um in this film probably the most iconic Kind of film of his whole um, uh, uh, career, also like Black Hack with Chris Hemsworth and a bunch of other great films. Michael Mann, amazing filmmaker in his own right. Producers was um, Art Linson and Michael Mann. Composer was Elliot Goldenthal. Uh, cinematographer was Dante Spinote, and editor was um, 
Pasquale Bubba, uh, and William Goldenberg, David Dove Honick, and Tom Rolfe. Casting director was Bonnie Timmerman, and production designer was Neil Spisek. Um, hopefully I'm pronouncing this correctly, probably not. The budget of the film was a cool $60 million in 1995. They'd be worth about 120.1 today. Opening weekend didn't Ain't that do, crazy that inflation has doubled? And since I've been born, yeah, basically, yeah. Yes. Since I was since I was born, wow. inflation has doubled. You know, ten dollars when I was born is twenty dollars today. Um, yeah. Opening weekend not that hot. Um, oh, didn't have hot. that much heat. <laughs> <laughs> I think they say heat like fifteen times in this film. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, but opening weekend it made eight point four million dollars, worth about sixteen point nine million dollars today. And then gross for just the U.S. and Canada, just to have the film uh, barely break even uh, for its initial budget at $67.4 million, worth about $135 million today. But gross worldwide, it made big money, and I'm sure it makes big money every year now on DVD and Blu-ray and digital sales, at $187.4 million. Hey, Kyle, what what, uh, what uh, day did this come out? December what? December 15th, 1995. You're going to with? Yeah, I'm going to see because for that being that low of a... Um, of a yeah, opening weekend. It might have all right, a here you week. go. Okay. Here's what it was up against. Um, so the box office release. Let me hit this. All right. I'm going to... I'm gonna, go ahead. And I'll, like oh, here we go. Break. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Number one. Toy Story. Toys. Okay. That which makes made sense. 101 uh, million dollars. Number two, Jumanji. Jumanji's with 48 million. Another incredible movie. Number three, Father of the Bride Part Two for 46 million. Pretty awesome. Uh, four was Heat with 31 million. Uh, and then you had uh, Goldeneye, Waiting to Excel, Sabrina, Grumpier Old Men, The American President, Casino. Oh. That might have been. Wait a minute. Man, yeah, 90, this is December. 95 was a banger of a year, apparently. Uh, Ace Ventura, When Nature Calls. Mm. Sun Death Get Shorty, Dracula Dead and Loving It. So there was a lot of movies. This must be this has to be for the whole year though, don't I'm it? sure it is, but still. Well no, it's domestic year, box office for December nineteen ninety five. Uh you could we get numbers. But, 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 yeah. but Toy Story came out on November twenty second. So for December fifteenth, uh Al Jumanji was out, uh Heat was out, uh Sabrina was out. Mm-hmm. And that's about all I'm seeing right yeah. now. So, and still, it's probably a week earlier than it should be because usually the Christmas movie also is huge too. So maybe it's just like maybe it's just a bad day for that. But still, it made money in the long run for sure. One hundred eighty-seven point right. four million worldwide. Um, that crosses to about three hundred seventy-five point three million dollars today. So that made this movie made great money for its time. It's more than modest success. It's a very good success version on great mini rates. Definitely uh, probably Michael Mann's biggest film overall in terms of like, you know, interesting for inflation, I bet. Um, not the other movies are bad too. I mean, he had Tom Cruise for God's sakes. So he definitely had some big big star power in other films as well. Um, but moving on here, we're going to go into the awards section, um, which has 14 awards nominations. So no wins actually. No wins. No wins. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we just kind of went through the ninety-five list there. We had some <laughs> some big movies that year. Yeah. So in a really big way. Um, but for the uh, I'm just going to go through some of the nominations that got here for the nineteen ninety-seven Italian Syndicate of Film Journalists. It was nominated for Best Cinematography and the nineteen ninety-seven Young Star Awards. It had the nomination for the Best Performance by a Young Actress in a Drama Film to Natalie Portman. 
And then for the 1996 Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films, it was nominated for Best Supporting Actor to Val Kilmer and Best Action Adventure Film. Then in the 1996 Chicago Film Critics Association Awards, it was nominated for Best Supporting Actress to Diona Venora, Best Cinematography, Best Picture, and Best Original Score to Elliot Goldenthal. Next up in the 1996 Cinema Audio Society, it was nominated for Outstanding Achievement in Sound Mixing for a Feature Film. Should have won that award. <laughs> don't know what it competed with, but it should have won that award. Most definitely. Um, next up in the Dallas-Fort Worth Film Critic Association Awards, it was nominated for Best Picture. Then for the MTV Movie and TV Awards, it was nominated for the Most Desirable Male Actor to Phil Kilmer. <laughs> okay, yeah, I guess. Phil well, Kilmer is a very underrated actor. He's been in some really good stuff. He's a great actor. I, I that also The Most Desirable Male in 1995. I mean, he... Uh, Val Kimber's a very good-looking man. Don't get me wrong, but I don't think he was like. But the you got to remember, tier. this is around the time he was playing Batman too. Oh, good point. So, and the Batman yes. makes you sexy. That's what yes. that's what they Bruce all say. Wayne. Yeah, yeah. If you can be Bruce Wayne, then you are the ultimate. Um, yeah, heartthrob for women around the world, except George. <laughs> but for not even Bruce time, Wayne, but, but he was definitely he's always been a heartthrob around the world. Let's be honest. All like a lot of women are, like yeah. George Clooney. A lot of women like George Clooney. <laughs> A lot of men too. <laughs> <laughs> um, 1995 Awards Circuit Community Awards. Um, we have the second place for best stunt ensemble. Oh man, I was looking for one. I was number one at that sometime. Not during this podcast. So. Um, aspect ratio. We have the cinematic aspect ratio of 2.39 by one. Um, film length is oh, astounding. Four uh four thousand six hundred eighty one meters. Oh, worth mentioning this. Also, this film has a runtime of I believe a hundred and seventy minutes. Almost three hours. Almost three hours of a film. And man, you you wouldn't think that going then. You would think this is like a two hour movie. But then like the huge heist happens. There's still like another like forty five minutes to go. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big big movie, and you, man, you don't know that going in sometimes. Um, that's how I feel every time I think about it. I was like, oh yeah, I have to get reminded. Like this is a three hour movie. Oh my god. <laughs> um, yeah, um, can you go forward here? Um, this actually this film used a four K remaster in 2021, and actually it went on sale just this last Prime Day for ten dollars, and I bought it immediately. So I was like, cool. <laughs> Just from there. Um, filming locations. This film was filmed on site in a lot of places in Los Angeles, California. And uh, boy, oh boy, I don't think we're ever going to see a film again that's actually filmed on site like that using blanks, shoot, shoot guns. Like, there's <laughs> no airport's ever going to let you have a shootout on an active runway ever again. <laughs> um, and even then, like, this man, like, uh, this is before even, like, um, Gosh, there was a huge shootout in real life in Los Angeles, California. They had like some similar vibes we'll as well. We'll get to it. Oh, yeah. It's, definitely in the tribute section. Get into the fact it. that this was filmed like two years or two or three years before that happened, astounding how close they got to the reality of it in a way that could actually be um, horrifying, actually, now. It might be too real in many respects. Um, but that goes for the filming locations of the film. Um, moving on here, we're going to do a quick little um, oh, a quick little plot summary of the film so we can kind of catch everyone up because we'll probably go a little bit of scene by scene, blow by blow for this film because it's such a big and amazing film that's on right there. 
But for a quick plot summary, this film is a hunters and their prey story. Um, Neil and his professional crime crew hunt scores to big to hunt to score big money targets like banks, vaults, and armored cars. And in turn, they're hunted by Lieutenant Vincent Hanna, played by Al Pacino, and his teams of cops in a robbery homicide police division. A botched job puts Hanna on their trail while they regroup and try to put together one last big retirement level score. Neil and Vincent are similar in many ways, including their troubled personal lives. At a crucial point in his life, Neil disobeys the dictum of he was taught go by his long by they was taught long ago by his criminal mentor and criminal mentor, and that was to never have anything in your life that you can't walk away out can't walk out in in thirty seconds flat mm. if you spot the heat coming around the corner. But he makes a mistake of falling in love. Thus, the stage is set for a suspenseful ending. And you know. I found myself rooting for the bad guys in this film. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 by design, you were definitely rooting for the bad guys, I think, all the way up until that last big score goes wrong. And then you see the depths of which they're willing to um, mm-hmm. do to escape. and that's Which is sad because they, they, they knew that they, they were catching the heat, if you will, from the cops. And they were closing in on them. And they were going to walk away, remember? Oh, yeah. And they said, uh, De Niro said, look, we can walk now. And they're like, well, what about this? And they're like, look. Yeah, he said, "We can we can go one last hurrah, if you will. Yeah, or we can walk away." But now. it's risky. And he doesn't like. It. And, you see, and there's the many scenes in that film where you see De Niro's character like searching for a way to have a, an easy out for him to say like, "We can't do this because we lost one person. We can't do this anymore. The, the height is off." Well, because and, everything that we had planned, this person has told them our entire escape plans, everything. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's such a good film. Such a good film, too. Yeah, but uh, we'll save that for a little, yeah. going, going after this last section here, which I'm going to tackle the cast. And this cast is huge. It is full of both big-name actors and big-name character actors in the same respects, too. And they've been in a lot of amazing films in their own right as well. So we're going to dive into that here. Um, and we're starting off with we're going to start with the legendary Al Pacino playing the character of Lieutenant Vincent Hanna. Vincent Hanna. Al Pacino, of course, an amazing actor in his own right, as well as a bunch of other characters we're going to go down here. But of course, um, one of my personal favorite films like Sensitive Woman, Scarface, nineteen eighty three, The Godfather films in the seventies, many of those excellent films as well. Next up, we have Robert De Niro playing Neil McCauley. Robert De Niro, once again, huge star in his own right. Robert De Niro was also in such films such as Cape Fear in nineteen ninety one. Taxi Driver in 1976 and Raging Bull in 1980. And then we have the heartthrob of 1995, apparently. Val Kilmer playing the character of Chris. Um, um, Oh, I think it's uh, Shehearless? Uh, I don't know the last name of that character right there. Yeah, he's but in my notes a lot, so I'm probably going to butcher, butcher that last name. Too. We'll just call him Chris for the rest of the podcast and if we can. Um, Val Kilmer, of course, also incredibly popular author. He played Batman that same year in Batman Forever in 1995. Um, he was in Top Gun in 1986 um, as the Iceman. Um, Tombstone in 1993. And The Doors in 1991. And- and Willow as Mad Mortigan. That's right. And Willow. did you ever see the movie The Saint? This, oh, yes. That's that Saint, is a that great movie, movie with him. Man, that movie is so underrated. It's you know? really good. <laughs> that movie sneaks on me like, that was awesome, actually. What are you talking about? <laughs> I didn't expect that. Um, next up, we have John Voight. Big name in his own right, too. John Voight was playing the character of Nate. 
And he also appeared in such films as uh, Midnight Cowboy in 1969, Anaconda in 1997, and Deliverance in 1972. <laughs> <laughs> then we have another legendary character actor right here, and Tom Sizemore, playing the character of um, Michael Chiretto. Michael Chiretto. Um, Tom Sizemore was also such films, such as uh, probably his big, biggest role was um, Saving Private Ryan in 1993. Mm-hmm. Black Hawk Down in 2001 and Natural Born Killers. I forgot to write down the year there. I think it was 98 or 99 or something there. Natural Born Killers with uh, Woody Harrelson. Yeah. Next up, we have Diane Venora playing the character of Justine. Diane uh, Venora, uh, Justine, I believe, was uh, Al Pacino's wife in the film, uh, if I remember correctly. And then Diane Venora was also in such films such as uh, The Jackal in 1997. I believe that was Bruce Willis' film. And The Substitute in 1996, which was an amazing, like, street, I think it was a street video film when it came out in the day. Um, kind of an interesting film there. Next up, we have um, Amy Brenneman playing the character of. Uh, um, Ida, uh, um, Amy Brennan was also in the film Judging Amy in, oh, oh, in the television series Judging Amy from 1999 to 2005 and the film Fear in 1996. Moving forward, we have Ashley Judge playing the role of Charlene. Ashley Judd was also in the film Double Jeopardy in 1999 and High Crimes in 2002. Next up, we have McKelty Williamson playing the character of Drucker. Malkiti um, Williamson was also in the films Force Gump in 1994 and Fences in 2016. Then we have West Study playing the character of Castles. West Study was also in the film The Last of the Mohicans in 1992. There we go, 1992, Last of the Mohicans. Then we have Ted Levine playing Bosco. Ted Levine was also is uh, easily most well known for playing the character of Buffalo Bill in the film The Sounds of the Lambs in 1991, just four years earlier. He's also one of the um, lead characters in the television show Monk from 2002 to 2009. Um, I like to imagine he's basically he's playing the role he played a monk in this film, and then <laughs> a few years later he's doing the same role again. He basically is. Um, he was also in the film Wild Wild West with uh, uh, Will Smith. Will, Will Smith, thank you, Will Smith. Yeah, and uh, that film as well. I think he was like Lieutenant Van Damme, Lieutenant Gump or something like that. I forget the name. Um, and then we have Dennis Haysbert playing the character of Donald Brennan. Um, Dennis Haysbert um, probably might be well known for his ads campaign as the um, the Allstate um, salesman. That's Allstate Sands. <laughs> That's what I always remember him as. Um, and he was also in a few crime shows. Um, he was also in the film Far From Heaven, 2002. And most recently, he was in, I think it's an Apple uh, movie, but the, the Flaming Hot movie, which just came out too. Which is now like, Flaming Hot Cheetos are now Latino heritage, apparently. I, can't, I have no idea. I don't think that story's true. I really don't. I remember correctly hearing that story's not true. Um, that's a Flaming Hot Cheetos, the movie. What's up with brand movies now? I don't get it. <laughs> Tangent. Okay, I gotta move forward. Next up, we have William Fitchner playing the character of Roger Van Zant. William Fitchner also in uh, several films, incredible films, uh, such as um, Clash in 2004, Black Hawk Down in 2001, and uh, was also in the film Armageddon in 1998. Next up, we have a young Natalie Portman playing Lauren Gustafson. Um, Lauren uh, basically playing uh, Al Pacino's uh, stepdaughter in the film. And uh, Natalie Portman, of course, also known as being an incredible adult actor now. Um, Pernicious films as uh, Black Swan, 2010. Um, I believe most recently she was in the um, the fourth um, Thor film for Thor Love and Thunder in 2022 and the um, other Thor movies that came out um, 
Well, she was in Thor 1 and 2, and then she came back before. She wasn't in 3, if I remember correctly. And she was also um, known for the film that came out last year, Leon the Professional. And um, probably Queen Amidala in Star Wars, Star Wars trilogy, the prequel trilogy. Um, Natalie Warman is a huge actor in her own right and been in many films as well. So, yeah, that, yeah, I should have mentioned Star Wars. Little film, little <laughs> film series. Made, made, made a little bit of money. Star Wars, I don't know. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's no Bowser Galactica. <laughs> It's no Farscape. <laughs> Babylon 5. No, it's no Babylon 5. Another sci-fi show. <laughs> it's no Andromeda. Oh, wow. Uh, it's a deep cut. Okay. Um, next up, we have Tom Newton playing the character of Kelso. Tom Newton, also uh, probably best known for his role as the um, uh, the, the the main bad... Well, not the main bad but the... Yeah, about the main bad guy in Robocop 2. Um, he was also in the film um, Synagogue and Synagogue New York in 2008, and the film Last Action Hero in 1993. Next up, we have Kevin Gage playing the character of Wayne Grow. Kevin Gage was also in the film G.I. Jane in 1997, and the film Below in 2001. Then next up, we have an amazing character actor, all right, Hank Azaria, playing the character of Alan Marcinio. Um, Hank Azaria, uh, best known for such roles, uh, it's a ton of voice roles in the Simpsons television series from 1989 all the way to now, still ongoing, as a uh, Pooh and a bunch of other amazing voice characters in that whole show. And uh, I think he also plays Mo, the bartender, a Pooh, mm-hmm. and a bunch of other characters. Actually, I don't know if he plays a Pooh anymore after that controversy, but that's neither here nor there. Um, he was also in the film um, The Birdcage in 1996 with Robin Williams and uh, a ton of other um, smaller um, kind of like uh, voice roles in films and voice and uh, character roles in films as well. So um, Hank Azaria, huge actor in his own right. Moving forward, we have Susan Trailer playing the character of Elaine Shireto. Um Susan Trailer was um, also in films A River Runs Through It in 1992 and The Casserole Club in, ni- in 2011. Moving forward, we have Kim Stoughton playing the character of Lillian. Kim Stoughton was also in the films Changing Lanes in 2002, Deceived in 1991, and Glory and Honor in 1998. Then we have Jerry, Danny Trejo playing himself. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> they even call him Danny in the film, even though his character listed as Trejo. Right. It's literally just his full name in the film. Danny Trejo is playing himself, which is hilarious. <laughs> um, yeah, Danny Trejo, also, of course, best known for um, probably his film series Machete in 2011. And, uh, Mach- and Machete Kills, I believe the sequel came out two years later. Um, and then also he played the exact same character again in Spy Kids 2001. <laughs> Um, because of uh, Michael Trachtenberg, I believe, is the director of those films, um, yeah, who basically always was fascinated with Danny Trejo and one of the characters of Machete for all those years. Um, he was also in the film Con Air in 1997, another amazing action film in its own right. Um, next up, we have the um, Henry Rollins, who's uh, probably best known. Uh, oh, um, Henry Rollins playing the character of Hugh Benny, who I believe is a uh, uh, William Fichtner's like assistant, assistant character in the film. Um, Henry Rollins, um, um, I think it's fair to say, probably best well known as a uh, primarily as a punk music artist um, from a lot of musicians from a lot of bands in the '90s um, up to now, still a musician now. And he was also in the films um, Johnny Mnemonic in 1995 and Bad Boys 2 in 2003, and still does a lot of work today. Um, you look at Henry Rollins on you know, Wikipedia; he did a, he did a little bit of everything. He's a jack of all trades kind of guy, uh, Renaissance man of the modern era. <laughs> um, anyways, moving forward, we have Jerry Trimble playing the character of Schwartz. Jerry Trimble was also in the films Kung Fu in 2021, just two years ago, and Breathing Fire. Um, I didn't write down the year for that film. 
Next up, we have Ricky Harris playing the character of Albert Torina. Um, Ricky Harris is also in the films Hard Rain in 1998 and Bones in 2001. Then next up, we have the actor Tone Locke. Um, that's his, uh, I don't have his real life name, but that's his, act, that's his uh, rapper name because he's primarily known as an American rapper today. And he was playing the role of Richard Torino, um, the brother of Albert in this film. Um, they're the two, um, the, uh, the two um, when a cop has an insider guy, um, a criminal that they have on a leash, basically like that, to give him insider information. I forget what they call them. Uh, a narc? A narc, basically. <laughs> basically a narc. Yeah, yeah. That's that's. There's another word for it, but I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, but Tone Locke was also in the film Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, in 1994. And he was also in the first, um, the, Fo- the Fern Gully film in 1992 as well as a voice actor in that film. Next up, we have Bingonia Plaza playing the character of Annie Trejo, who was playing the character of Dane Trejo's wife in the film. Um, Bingonia was also in the film Born on the Fourth of July with Tom Cruise in 1989 and Made to Order in 1987. Then next up, moving forward to, we have Ray um, Bucktonica. Um, butchering that last name, I'm sure. Um, Bucktonica. Um, playing the role of Timmons. Ray was also in the film My Girl in 1991 and the film Shop Girl in 2005. Then we have Jeremy Piven playing the character of Dr. Bob. Um, Jeremy Piven was also in the film Ent- Oh, she was in he was in a TV series Entourage from 2004 to 2011 and he was also in the film Old School in 2003 and Smoking Aces in 2006. Then finally we have Xander Berkeley playing the character of Ralph Xander Berkeley also appeared in the film Terminator 2, Judgment Day, and Candyman in 1992. And that's going to be where I cut off the cast list there for Heat. So as you can tell, there's a lot, a lot of talented actors and actresses in this film. Yeah. This is a big old movie, Jimbo. Yes, it is. (laughs) So here we go with the trivia. Um, This was filmed without a single soundstage. Yeah. All on All location. All on location. That's impressive. Mm-hmm. And because of that, we get a very unique sound signature for this entire film. Um, really, unlike any other film, I think this film is the most realistic sounding film maybe ever made. <laughs> very good. Mm-hmm. Um, the drive-in sequence was shot at the Centinella Drive-In in Inglewood, California, which had been closed since 1993. The theater was demolished in 1998, and the site is now occupied by an apartment complex. So, here we go. Uh, John Voight initially turned down the part of Nate, telling Michael Mann that there were several actors who could perform the part better. Mann told Voight that he wanted him for the role since he'd always wanted to work with him. That's pretty awesome, too. And I think, like, uh, like if it was any other actor, it wouldn't have been noteworthy, his role. Um, but because it was John Voight, it makes it interesting. It makes it, because like, you, you immediately... Because of the the grandeur of that actor, you immediately kind of craft your own eternal backstory where you know that like the, the Nate's character has been around for years doing a lot of stuff. You can just immediately imagine that because it's John Voight in that role specifically. And also, I think uh, I, don't, I don't really care for John Voight as a person, but I think this character Nate as what probably is the main inspiration for what Rockstar Games did with Grand Theft Auto Five with the character Lester, who it's instead in made him. Oh, they they did that too. Well, uh, yeah. not not that, but. Uh... I'll, we'll get to it. John Voight's probably inspired a lot of Grifthoff characters, to be fair. But yeah. interesting how I how that character has kind of gone forward in many ways and been inspired other characters in future media as well in a very small role. So, yeah, take it on. Uh, the cast was given weapons and tactics training by former British Special Air Service members, uh, members Andy McNabb and Mick Gold. 
Gold has a cameo as one of the cops who breaks into Henry Rollins' flat. Oh, really cool there. Uh, the first film to feature Robert De Niro and Al Pacino acting together, which created much hype prior to release. They both starred in The Godfather Part Two, but never shared the screen together, um, as the split chronology prevented this. When this film was finally released, even its advertising materials promoted this film as De Niro and Pacino showdown. Probably, yeah, it's probably the biggest point of advertising for the marketing of this film is having those two actors together for the first time in a really big way. So, really cool there. So, uh, we know that Val Kilmer played Chris Shaherless, but here we go. There's some people, as we go through this, it's spread out throughout the notes, but... This is the first one we come to. Oh, wait, which which actor playing which role? This is the Chris Sahirless, the one that Val Kilmer plays. Oh, okay, Chris, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, Chris Val Kilmer. So here's the first one. Keanu Reeves was originally scheduled oh, wow. to play Chris Sahirless, and Carson Norigard was also one of Michael Mann's options, but they both lost the part when Val Kilmer was able to squeeze it into his schedule while making Batman Forever. That is an incredibly amazing small world moment because I... I've I've had talks about this before, um, and I've heard people other people talk about it outside of me. But like you kind of you can do a kind of a clear line of like Val Kilmer's like professionalism in this film as a combatant in a, on like a battlefield kind of like scenario, and with Val Kilmer's role, I think led to Tom Cruise's role in Collateral being that amazing hitman. And I feel like um, Collateral's like Tom Cruise action in that film. I don't think you get John Wick without that film being made. So it's like almost like a clear line of like, the, <laughs> Keanu Reeves came so close to becoming John Wick in this film. Is there another reality where Val Kilmer became John Wick 20 years later? <laughs> <laughs> Just by the reverse cosmosis. But still, that's amazing uh, coincidence right there. <laughs> uh, when Michael Mann filmed the restaurant scene at Cape Man- uh, Mantellini's in Beverly Hills, he used the restaurant's actual employees as extras. Upon the last day of filming, he awarded them all with a SAG a SAG card. <laughs> I wonder if they're picking right now. <laughs> uh, the scene involving the shootout after the bank robbery was particularly tricky to film since they were only allowed to film on the weekends. In June of 2002, the scene involving the shootout after the bank robbery was shown to the United States Marine recruits at MCRD San Diego as an example of the proper way to retreat while under fire. I looked up a few of the interviews with the, um, the, the 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 trainers for this film, and they specifically note like everyone else like did a really really great job, but like Val Kilmer seems like he was just that guy from the start. Yeah, I'm I, sure you got something to trivia later on, but like like he was the one that took to it immediately the fastest, and like was just like he is the warrior of this film in so many ways that just he took to it immediately and like talk about how recruiters basically use his footage of changing that mag so smoothly. Well, we'll get to it, but it's because that his grandfather had taught him how to uh, yeah. you know, shoot and all that with all these different types of guns. But, yeah, this but definitely so many other films where like you sell, you can see an actor like, oh, they had a few weeks of training, but they still kind of look green or untrained when they're kind of like... Well, Val Kilmer helped teach all the other actors in yeah, this yeah. too but, yeah, that's but crazy Val, but Val Kilmer just immediately sells especially it. like when he's reloading the clip he's like do 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 yeah just go back and forth man. yeah yeah just like just it's like, awesome it has that you know that you, you know the feeling of being a professional at your job when you do something that just feels almost supernaturally good Val Kilmer just sells it immediately in a way right. that no other actor really I think can. He, he probably stole the show in yeah. my opinion yeah. that's how good he was it, for that specific sequence entirely oh, for sure definitely. That, that's his sequence because of that whole because of his training there uh, Bosco at the party tells a story of a grade school friend uh, of his named Raul Michael Mann said that the story was completely ad-libbed by Ted Levine and that he has no idea how Levine came up with it. 
Michael Mann visited inmates in Folsom Prison to gain some insight into prison life to aid his depiction of Neil, uh, Robert Nero's character. Mann later commented that Neil's uh, collars were always perfectly starched as they would have been in prison. Uh, here we go. The meeting between Robert De Niro and Al Pacino over coffee was shot at Cape Madalini's on Wilshire Boulevard in Beverly Hills. The Los Angeles mainstay was a noted top spot for a stylish late supper. The restaurant had heat spelled in neon above the door and a large poster of the actors in the now famous scene. Uh, diners could request the table, uh, the very table featured in the scene, table 71, which wait staff were familiar with as the table, and were happy to see De Niro and Pacino fans at their famous meeting place. The restaurant closed in late 2014. Yeah. And Kyle, I think right here, um, so people understand the importance of this movie and the great, this scene stills the show. This sets up the entire, or it sums up the entire movie in this one scene between the two, the the good guys Mm -hmm. and the bad guys, if you will call them that. Uh, so I think I'm going to insert this clip. It's about six minutes long. Uh, for one, there is some uh, language in the, the dialogue between the two. But I think it's worth noting, and I'm going to put it in right here. So hang tight. Seven years in Folsom. In the hole for three. McNeil before that. McNeil is tough as they say. You're looking to become a penologist? You're looking to go back? You know, I chase down some crews, guys just looking to fuck up, get busted back at you. You must have worked some dipshit crews. I worked all kinds. You see me doing thrill-seeker liquor store hold-ups with a born-to-lose tattoo on my chest? No, I do not. Right. I am never going back. Then don't take down scores. I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. Trying to stop guys like me. So you never wanted a regular type life? The fuck is that? Barbecues and ball games? Yeah. This regular type life, that your life? My life? No, my life. No, my life's a disaster zone. I got a stepdaughter so fucked up because her real father's this large type asshole. I got a wife. We're passing each other on the downslope of a marriage, my third. Because I spend all my time chasing guys like you around the block. That's my life. Guy told me one time. Don't let yourself get attached to anything you are not willing to walk out on in 30 seconds flat if you feel the heat around a corner. Now, if you're around me and you got to move when I move, how do you expect to keep a, a marriage? Well, that's an interesting point. What are you, a monk? I have a woman. What do you tell her? I tell her I'm a salesman. So then if you spot me coming around that corner, you're just going to walk out on this woman? Not say goodbye? 
That's the discipline. That's pretty vacant. Yeah, it is what it is. It's that or we both better go do something else, pal. I don't know how to do anything else. Neither do I. I don't much want to either. Neither do I. You know, I have this uh, recurring dream. I'm sitting at this big banquet table, and all the victims of all the murders I ever worked are sitting at this table, and they're staring at me with these black eyeballs because they got eight ball hemorrhages from the head wounds. And there they are, these big balloon people, because I found them two weeks after they've been under the bed. The neighbors reported the smell. And there they are, all of them just sitting there. What do they say? Nothing. No talk? None. Just, they don't have anything to say. See, we just look at each other. They look at me. And that's it, that's the dream. I have one where I'm drowning. And I gotta wake myself up and stop breathing or I'll die in my sleep. You know what that's about? Yeah. Having enough time. Enough time to do what you wanna do. That's right. You're doing it now. No, not yet. You know, we're sitting here, you and I are like a couple of regular fellows. I mean, you do what you do, I do what I gotta do. And now that we've been face to face, if I'm there and I gotta put you away, I won't like it. But I'll tell you, if it's between you and some poor bastard whose wife you're gonna turn into a widow. Brother, you are going down. There's a flip side to that coin. What if you do got me boxed in? Then I gotta put you down. Because no matter what, you will not get my way. We've been face to face, yeah. But I will not hesitate, not for a second. Maybe that's the way it'll be. Well, maybe we'll never see each other again. All right, so there you can see that um, this, the dialogue between the two, and, and I've got some more trivia later on in here that we'll hit on because this trivia is all jumbled up, but um, 
it's it's a very interesting piece um, and a very very important scene shot for this film and in movie history in my personal opinion yeah the, I mean, there are there are reflections of the same coin two sides of the same coin exactly for sure and without this scene you just don't have the movie you make the whole movie just for this scene and you know what yeah. after watching the entire movie and then going back to watch this again mm-hmm. it, it just all comes together beautifully so <laughs> In an interview with Al Pacino on the DVD special edition, Pacino revealed that for the scene in the restaurant between Hannah and Macaulay, Robert De Niro felt that the scene should not be rehearsed so that the unfamiliarity between the two characters would seem more genuine. Michael Mann agreed and shot the scene with no practice rehearsals. That's incredible. So that is awesome. Yeah, and you definitely... Man, the feelings in that that scene are just absolutely incredible. And De Niro in that is so perfect because he's basically like, I'm going to do, you know, because you, 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 Pacino's like, you know, you know, I take take down guys mm-hmm. like you uh, that do hits, and, and Pacino or uh, De Niro's like, I do hits. It's your job to try to stop me, basically. Yeah. You know, what I mean? he's like, I'm going to do what I do best, and I yeah. thought, man, and just De Niro's demeanor, that entire scene right there. I, they both might as well have daggers piercing into oh. each other while they're looking oh. at each and, other. And, the and then scene. you know what's crazy is no. Pacino could have arrested him right there. Could have killed him there because he got pulled and over. Right, there. <laughs> right. But but if you remember earlier in the scene when they uh, when they see him, uh, Val Kilmer and De Niro going to steal them documents or whatever from that safe. Or the, you know, he's like, yeah. I got, I need five more minutes, and they're up there watching him behind that sign. And and uh, he's like, we're going to take him. And Pacino's like, no, you're not going to take him. You do it. All, I'm under control. He's like, you're just going to get them. They're going to get slapped on the hand. And they're going to be re-released into the streets. Six so, months later, same problems and, again. But yeah. until they actually could. could catch them in the act that it was they weren't going to get them for anything and it wasn't going to stick so mm-hmm. it's, it's just great um mckelty uh williamson in the special edition dvd of the movie said in an interview that michael mann arranged for cast members to meet with real life lapd detectives and professional criminals at an exclusive restaurant the name of which williamson refused to disclose where lapd detectives and criminals socialized Cast members playing the detectives had dinner with the LAP detectives and their wives one night, while the cast members playing the thieves had dinner with the real-life criminals and their wives on a separate night. Williamson said that man arranged these events so that the actors and actresses would have a better idea of how real detectives and criminals socialized and interacted with each other. Yeah, that's a very interesting. I think the criminal scene's a lot better too. Overall, I think the criminal scene actually captures a lot of the characters' individualities a lot more interesting than the FBI scene does, and they're right. kind of dinner together because the FBI scene just kind of is like, yeah, yeah, these are a bunch of guys coming around too. But the criminals, like they, they are all kind of uh, they have a unique identity to them each kind of scene, and um, the FBI is kind of like they get a little bit washed up in one another. Like they're clearly a team, but I can't tell you what any individual role is in that team really. Right. Yeah. Um, John, uh, Nate is based on a real-life former uh, career criminal, Edward Bunker. Bunker had previously starred in another famous heist film, Reservoir Dogs, in 1992. Uh, Smithy, uh, Michael Mann, he disowned the television version aired by NBC. Mann offered to restore 17 of the cut minutes. NBC decided to instead cut 40 minutes of this film out in order to fit a three-hour television time slot. Man said, you call it a Michael Smithy or an Alan Mann movie. Wow. They cut 40 minutes. 40 minutes. You know, over, even yeah. though this is almost three hours long, I think every single, because we watch, I watched the definite uh, director's edition. Yeah. And I don't really think there's much you can cut out to make, to have it impact more. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it kind of goes to a level where we're just like, at a certain level, maybe this made more sense as a TV show than a national movie, but also this is just such a, still for the for the scope of this film, it needs to be a movie. So it's like, it's just crossed between there in many respects. So I was like, yeah, you can't like, 
you know, Kevin Forty Minutes out, you're cutting an episode out of an amazing drama series. You know, it's like you can't do that. It makes no sense. Right. You 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 kill it. You, you, it's not even the product anymore. So yeah, I understand that his uh, frustration there is he like don't even say it's my film anymore. I mean, that's entirely. like cutting out all the Ginny scenes from Forrest Gump. The yeah, ending exactly. would make no sense. Yeah, to yeah, you if make, not. Yeah. Uh, Michael Mann made the movie as tribute to a detective friend of his in Chicago who obsessively tracked and killed a thief named Neil McCauley. Uh, he had once met under nonviolent circumstances. Yeah, and once again, that, that's basically because the, that real life detective and thief did have something equivalent to the diner scene in the real life, and that's where Michael Mann got his main inspiration for this film. Uh, and how good was Wayne Grow in this movie? So Wayne Grow, who is played by Kevin Cage or Gage, sorry, is based on a real Chicago criminal named Wayne Grow who ratted out some influential Chicago criminals. According to Michael Mann, Wayne Grow went missing. His body was found in northern Mexico where it had been nailed to the wall of a shed. Nailed to the wall of a shed is such... Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, Wayne Grow's character is incredible in this film for how despicable and disgusting he is in this film and how well they sell it because... Man, he, he's his vibes are so off right from the start of the film too, and he's like the first character you really see in this film too. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, you get the sense that like he's a psychopath that wants friends, and like he like it's clear like I could see myself doing a couple jobs here more. <laughs> and then Tom Sizemore is like, "Hey, can you um, shut up for the rest, of the rest of this heist if you don't mind?" And he just looks so visibly disappointed and hurt, and clearly anger. Like right there, he's just like, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna." Sh- break you in half that's how like wingers kind of look at him right there and when he messes up the job there because he's just he's a he's a he's a he's a he's a mess up character he's a he's a he's a bad dog he's, he's the kyle him. of the group he's the will. kyle of the wow thanks <laughs> <laughs> anyways next scene where he has a swastika on his chef <laughs> uh, so uh amy brenneman disliked the script and didn't want to be in the movie saying it was too filled with blood and no morality Michael Mann told her that with that mindset, she would be perfect for the role of Eddie. <laughs> yeah. so. That's a great counter. That's a great counter. <laughs> so you're perfect for the film. That's what you're saying? Yeah. And also be frustrated by this. Uh, in the director's commentary, Michael Mann noted that Al Pacino improvised a line because she's got a great blank. <laughs> uh, Hank Azaria confirmed it, saying that Al Pacino's unexpected outburst scared, scared him, uh, that he just actually. That it right actually there. terrified him, and that the look on his shock was not acting at all. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, in an early draft of the script, Vincent Hanna had a cocaine habit, while, according to Al Pacino, he explains his bombastic outburst. Mm-hmm. It's something that, like, like, uh, like it's like it's still definitely in the script, but also not like it's ne- it's never explicitly said now, but it's definitely implied for the entire script. Like, yeah, he's definitely doing cocaine all the time, and definitely doing a cocaine right before that scene and a few other scenes where he has those huge outbursts of energy. Um, definitely makes a lot of sense. But I think there's even a sign later where like his wife is implying that he. He takes narcotics to keep up in this right. his line of work, while his wife also does a lot of uh, pills herself too. Kind of cliche for the time. Um, in the director's commentary, Michael Mann said that Neil's trademark gray suits was uh, were designed to help him blend into a crowd and not draw attention to himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, here we go. Uh, John Claude Van Damme was briefly considered for the role of Michael Chirito. Michael Chirito. Oh, Tom Sizemore character. Yeah. Um, yeah, that wouldn't have worked. <laughs> he would have took out the whole fake employees by himself. He, he takes too much attention away from the screen, I think. Tom Sizemore's a character uh, actor for that reason. Like He, Here he we runs go. into the world. Don Johnson was briefly considered for the part of Michael Chirito. He was also discussed as a possible backup for both De Niro and Pacino if one of them turned it down. Don Johnson. What was he in again? 
I can't remember his. Can't. Kyle, I'm I'm done with you if you don't know who Don Johnson is. I, I know who Don Johnson is, but it, it's 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 the morning, and I can't I can't think of it off the top of my head. Throw it at me, Jimbo. You can't can't leave me on this. I believe, Kyle. If you take out your little cellular device, I never. And you look up Miami Vice. Thank you, thank you, Don Johnson from Miami Vice. Thank you, I appreciate it. Uh, right. Okay, so <laughs> for a possible alternative for the two leading roles. Nick Nolte and Jeff Bridges were considered. Nick Nolte would have been amazing. Jeff, Jeff, Jeff Bridges. I would also rather great. see Nick Nolte and Gary Busey. <laughs> no, because this would have been after the motorcycle accident, so he would have been a little bit off. <laughs> exactly. Gary Busey could have played Wayne Grove. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. Could have seen him playing Wayne Grove. That would have been interesting. Although, like, man. <laughs> The actor played Wingro was pretty great too. Yeah. Kevin Gage really sold just the the scumminess to him. Oh gosh! Uh, like, for the no, sorry for the restaurant sequence where Macaulay and Hannah finally meet, Michael Mann ran two cameras simultaneously in order to generate a greater level of fluidity between both rivals. Since there were no rehearsals for the scene, this approach afforded both men a more generous margin for improv- improvisational experimentation. And and he didn't rehearse it. I mean. It's insanity. It's insanity. I wonder if they filmed it on the first take. You'd almost have to. Basically, yeah. That, that, I think that's definitely implied. Yeah, they probably nailed it on the first take. Just got it done that way, and that was it. Uh, no. The two main characters used to be in the Marine Corps. Uh, Detective Hannah Al Pacino has talked about uh, during the briefing for Macaulay's uh, final robbery. Macaulay is clearly seen with an eagle globe and anchor tat on his arm when getting up from bed uh, with Edie. So that's pretty cool. A Marine Corps plaque also appears briefly in Vincent's office in the Major Crimes Unit, although the traditional cross swords are removed. So we definitely would have the timeline of probably like I'm, I'm, we're probably assuming Vietnam era soldiers. Then in that case, then too for Al Pacino and Robert De Niro's character, you'd probably assume probably maybe in a deeper backstory, one enlisted and one was drafted. The idea there. Um, a Marine, or sorry, although this is the second film in which Pacino, uh, of which Al Pacino and Robert De Niro have shared top billing. In this movie, they only share two scenes together for a total of less than ten minutes. But, but it's sold immediately. Yeah, it's, 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 but it's it's all about the chase. Yeah. You yeah, know yeah. what I mean? This, it's, it's how you have right. that one great scene. But even then, like there's the like the scene specifically of going to the um get into the safe to get the documents they need, and just when Robert Nero stares daggers daggers right into the van that um, Al Pacino's character is on the back of, and just stares into the camera. Oh yeah, with like the, with like the uh, with X-ray the, vision, or yeah, whatever. with the X-ray vision, and he just looks at it. And in the, and in the shot, he has like you know he has no eyes in that shot, but he's just clearly staring right at Al oh, Pacino's face right there. He's like, how dare you look at me right here? <laughs> you know, it's amazing. Hank <laughs> uh, Azaria was also working on the birdcage while filming. Uh, uh, filming his scene in this film. The scene was filmed on his 30th birthday. It was Al Pacino's 54th birthday as well, so they share the same birthday. Oh, wow. Uh, Diane Venera was bemused that she got the part of Al Pacino's wife, seeing as the screenplay described her character as a uh, languorous redhead with thighs for days. <laughs> and a, That's not Diane Venera. This is hilarious. In a Japanese television interview in 1995, Robert De Niro and Al Pacino got asked, which role play, police or robber, did you do when you were uh, when in, in boyhood? De Niro replied, police. And Pacino replied, police doing robbery. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> but De Niro said police, so he's obviously he wasn't the robber, which he is in this. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's a cool. video game adaptation was reported to be in development around 2009, but it never came to fruition, which that would have been awesome. It would have just been a shoot-em-up. Kind of. it, it would have been a shoot-em-up, but also like... Strategic, it, yeah. Uh, it, it was like... 
so many video games tried to capture that vibe, and it was definitely the case that like Grand Theft Auto V was probably the closest one to get to it, especially in their last heist of that game too. Um, that definitely was trying to go the furthest they could to kind of get there, and I think to martial level success. I think Grand Theft Auto V has a lot. Of, I have a lot of misgivings with that game, but um, they largely succeeded in that one aspect of getting that one that last big score fight scene done in a really cool way. So um, stuff there. Al Pacino had a full facelift before filming began. Uh, this is Tom Hiddleston's favorite film. The Spider-Man actor or or the Tom director? Hiddleston. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Loki. It's Loki. <laughs> we right? just recorded uh, Friday. Hey, Tom Hiddleston, night. Loki. Yeah, Tom Hiddleston is Loki. You're right. You're right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I heard Tom. Ho- that I wanted to go to Tom Holland though, so I wanted to be Spider-Man or the oh. director. And make a joke about Friday night, which we just covered last week. Uh, Danny Trejo, who plays a member of the crew, has been an inmate at Folsom Prison in real life, just like Neil in the movie. Um, in the original script, the gunman at the drive-in was still alive after being shot and, at and run over. Neil executes the shooter a few moments after approaching and talking to him. In the final film, the shooter appears to be dead since the scene is absent. Yeah. Gong Lee was offered the role of Justine Hanna. She refused unless the script was translated into Mandarin. She would later star in Michael Mann's Miami Vice in 2006. Yeah. Madeline Stowe turned down the role of Justine Hanna. I wonder why they wouldn't be willing to just translate the script into Mandarin for. Yeah, that's weird. <laughs> Unless that was... No, maybe they didn't have anybody to do it. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just such a weird little thing. That's like a follow-through moment. Just like, like, surely it wouldn't have cost that much money to ask a translation company to just translate the script for. Or maybe or if she a, could have just got the script and done it herself. Or if they did a Mandarin cut of the film. Or yeah, yeah, got the script and paid someone else to do it for right. her at that point, too. Or like... She must not have wanted it that that's, way, I guess. I don't know. That's very odd. <laughs> uh, Johnny Depp was considered for the role of Chris Scherrerlis, uh, but his character, asking yeah. price was deemed too high. Michael Mann later went on and worked with him in Public Enemies in 2009. Not not a good movie. <laughs> uh, Robert De Niro was the first cast member to get the film script. He showed it to Al Pacino, who also wanted to be a part of the film, so thanks to Robert De Niro for getting Al Pacino in on it. In April 1994, Michael Mann was reported to have abandoned his earlier plan to shoot a biopic of James Dean in favor of directing. Uh, that could have been really good, too. Though. That could have been really good, but also I feel like, if man, there's still a lot of stuff about James Dean that I don't know. if like, do, do we need more James Dean stuff? I don't know. We need a lot more James Dean <laughs> stuff. I'm crazy. Um, in order to prepare the actors for the roles of Macaulay's crew, Michael Mann took Val Kilmer, Tom Sizemore, and Robert De Niro to Folsom State Prison to interview actual career criminals. Hmm. While researching her role, Ashley Judd met several former prostitutes who became housewives. <laughs> Good for them. Good for them. Can you imagine trying to trying to find? Uh, yeah, I'm looking for a hooker. Yeah, thing. yeah that's the thing. Where, like, I don't like, know how you find those people for your roll calls. And yeah, it's like, I'm trying to study know. for a role. I need a prostitute that became a housewife, and then like 15 people raised their hand in a room. I guess like who who asked for that? <laughs> Uh, this is one of Christopher Nolan's favorite films. The film inspire, inspired his vision of Gotham City in the Dark Knight trilogy, which you can see that. I, I agree, yeah. Uh, rather than dubbing the in the gunshots during the bank robbery shootout, Michael Mann had microphones carefully placed around the set so that the audio could be captured live. Yeah. This added to the impact of the scene because it sounded like no other gunfight shown on screen. And I have to agree, when, there's, when Val Kilmer is... Shooting and then he turns off. It's just it echoes. It's beautiful. 
and I think this film, kind of like Independence Day and a few other films, like this is the, like when you get your whole new sound system, which used to be a bigger thing in the 90s and early 2000s than it is now. But like when you got your huge new sound system, that was like the first thing you put in. You put in heat. Or Saving Private Ryan. Independence Day. You put in Saving Private Ryan. Of just like, I want to feel the reverberations of these explosions in my body of just ridiculous sound systems. That's always the debut thing you put in there. And it's still in remains so because it's that good. Yeah. Uh, the coffee shop scene sold Robert De Niro on the idea of making this film. He, Al Pacino, and Michael Mann later admitted that they couldn't wait to shoot that one scene, which... Like I said, it subbed up the whole movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm still on the sound effect thing. It's like the sound of gunfire reverberating against glass towers is always just the most like crazy weird sound in the world. Now, now this is a uh, this is a group a couple that were considered for the lead roles of Vincent and Neil that I think could have worked. And it was Mel Gibson and Harrison Ford. I think that would have been really good Mel too. Gibson and Harrison Ford. That would have been. That's a very different movie in my mind, but also incredible in its own right. Because that's, I, I go more Western in my mindset. I don't really necessarily why, but I think it's more of a Western in that case than a crime drama as, a, as Al Pacino and, uh, and uh, Robert De Niro did here. You know, it, but like, I mean, as like, as a vibe, not necessarily as a plot. Yeah. You know what I mean? No, but <laughs> Thanks, I still Jimbo. think it would be good. Yeah. I think them too, because I mean, you see a lot of their movies like, um, Ransom, uh, Harris Ford, Clear and Present Danger, Air Force One, all that. So Witness, all those movies. I, I think. Really I still think if I want to think of Harrison Ford, though, I think Indiana Jones, and I think Han Solo, and that's where I get a more. Yeah, because you probably haven't watched a lot more. I've watched one. Air Force One. <laughs> no, that wasn't a good and, one though. And, and Fugitive, and then the other films. Yeah. Fugitive is really good. Yeah. Uh, before Danny Trejo was hired to play the role of Trejo in this movie, he and Edward Bunker, a writer were hired to be an armed robbery consultant since they both did time for these crimes and knew the ins and outs of performing such crimes. When Michael Mann spotted Danny, Mann introduced him to Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Val Kilmer, and John Voight, where they discussed the cops and Robert's uh, shtick. After the meeting, Trejo would earn this role. So, uh, James Caan had been rumored to have been concerned for the role of Nate. Kane lamented to Michael Mann that he did not get to star in Heat on their 1998 com- uh, DVD commentary for Thief. Hmm. Uh, Al Pacino revealed in Argentina when he performed an evening with Al Pacino at the uh, Teatro Colon that uh, when they had to rehearse the last scene, Robert De Niro told him no words. He still thinks that this was the right call. Yeah. <laughs> uh, William Fickner, uh, who played Roger Van Zant, appeared in the bank robbery sequence that opened uh, The Dark Knight. Oh wow! So once again, another small crossover yep. there. Man, you can even see so much of Christopher Nolan's, like especially in the Dark Knight too. It's like so many glass towers and reflective kind of like surfaces there too. Almost like every house that's in this Michael Mann film of just like everyone has like a glass dome where everyone can see you at all times. Uh, the train station shown in the beginning of the film is the same station featured at the end of Collateral in two thousand four, which was also directed by Michael Mann. Yep. William Peterson turned down the role of uh, Michael Chirito. Brad Pitt was also considered for the role of Chris Shilleris. Uh, Val Kilmer's character again. I think Brad Pitt could have done an amazing job as well, but I'm still happy Val Kilmer got it. Right. Yeah. Uh, Vincent and Hannah's Armani suits and slick back hair are an homage to the Los Angeles Lakers coach Pat Riley. Riley's style was also copied by Michael Douglas in Wall Street and by Kurt Russell in Tequila Sunrise. 
Yeah. It kind of carries that granger of professionalism that I really appreciate this whole film kind of having to. Like, they look so slick and dressed up because they know exactly what they're doing at every given moment. Both of them. Yeah. That's just, I think that's kind of the vibe they're trying to go for, and it absolutely works. Where, like, that's where you believe, like, oh, yeah, Robert De Niro and Val Pacino both know what they're doing at all times. Right. Yeah. Uh, the explicit nature of several of the film scenes was cited as the model of a spate of robbery since its release. So this is since the release, Kyle. This included armored car robberies in South Africa, Colombia, Denmark, Norway, and most famously, the 1997 North Hollywood shootout in which Larry Phillips Jr. and Emil uh, Matasarinu uh, robbed the North Hollywood branch of the Bank of America and similarly to this film, were confronted by the LAPD as they left the bank. This shootout is considered one of the longest and bloodiest events of its type in American police history. Both robbers were killed, and 11 police officers and 7 bystanders were injured during the shootout. This movie was widely referenced during the coverage of the shootout. Ah, uh, makes total sense. I believe there's also, like, I don't know if it's in deeper into trivia stuff, there's even, like, criminal organizations that have actually thought about, like, using this film as a training for themselves, too, when doing a heist to some degree as well, of the mindset they have to go in, go into for a successful heist. According yeah. to Danny Trejo, Val Kilmer, who was still filming Batman Forever at the time, told him on the set that he had just refused an offer of $40 million to reprise his Batman role in another film because he did not want to waste his talent wearing a mask. <laughs> Trejo was very amused by this because Kilmer's role in Heat also required him to wear a mask during the robbery scene. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. You know, I'm sure I'm sure Danny does very well for himself too, but I bet he also looks at Val Kilmer rejecting $40 million and he's like, you are the stupidest man. <laughs> I know. What are you talking about, you idiot? I'm sure he's modest enough to know. Val Kilmer, take $40 million. <laughs> and you're Batman. <laughs> and you're Batman. Uh, for the sequence where uh, Neil and Edie discuss a possible future together on the terrace at night, Michael Mann and cinematographer uh, Dante Spinotti wanted to capture the background nightscape with some degree of prominence in the shot. The actors were first filmed in front of a green screen, which was placed at the actual terrace, and the uh, the background was then filmed separately with the camera running at three frames per second in order to boost the exposure level to better complement the foreground activity. Hmm. So nice little movie magic there. Impressive work. Hank Azaria based Moe's voice in The Simpsons on Al Pacino in Dog Day Afternoon, and the actors appear together in this film. Uh, the restaurant where Neil meets with Michael and Chris to expunge the rebel Wangro was called Johnny's uh, Johnny's Broiler, located at 7447 Firestone Boulevard in Downey, California, about 12 miles southeast of downtown L.A. Oh, I'm still going today. I don't know. Maybe some of our California friends f- and f- find out Check for out us. Danny's Broiler. Take some pictures. Yeah. Among the parallel and the characters of Neil and Vincent are that both are stylish dressers, both are former Marines, both are relentless in their activities, they are both sacrificed in romantic relationships for the sake of what they do, and they both check their guns to make sure that they had a chambered round before breaking down a door. So they know what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. It's incredible. Uh, U2 isn't mentioned during the song credits because they're, they contribute a track under the name of The Passengers, which was a collaboration with Brian Eno and Daniel Lenoise. Uh, a 30-second instrumental music track by U2's uh, making can be heard when Al Pacino is driving towards the nightclub to meet the snitch. Several tests were done to ensure that the armored car would tip over when struck by the tow truck during the first robbery scene. Ultimately, the weight had to be added to the roof of the armored car, shifting its center of gravity upwards so it would tip over on its side. 
Uh, during the bank shootout, man wanted to realistically portray the damage caused by gunfires. Several of the cars were used in the scene were taken to a firing range and shot up with real rifles. The bullet holes uh, were then filled with Bondo painted over and then blown open with squibs on camera. I, not about the bullet holes, but the initial high stare of the armored truck car. I love when they put the bomb on the door and then like that, that detonation when it breaks the rear windows of all those cars. cars, these cars yeah. Amazing work. That's so cool to see. Just- this is a really cool fact right here. Uh, the console TV man who witnesses the armored robbery car at the beginning was an actual homeless man who lived near the shooting location. Area shop owners used to leave an extension cord behind their store so he could plug in his television set. He met the producers when they were scouting locations with him, and they arranged for him to have a small role. So That's how incredible. awesome is that? I wonder if you get a sad car for it. <laughs> <laughs> He's out there right now. I, picking I, the I wonder what he thought when Al Pacino opens the door and he kicks out his TV and it just shatters. Right there. He's like, you know. <laughs> If only, even, I love that scene. He's, like, he's like, you know, you you could you could screw my wife. You come in here, you can eat my food. He's like, but you will not watch my TV. He unplugs his TV, takes it with it. I love that scene. But even uh, when he destroys it, I'm like, no, dude, it's a good sear TV. Yeah. You don't know the color reproduction accuracy, <laughs> the hertz, the refresh rate of it. Oh, it's so good for retro games. Uh, yeah, it was awesome. Uh, Neil McCauley is seen never seen driving the same car, which implies that he frequently abandons cars and acquires or stills new ones for his next ride. Uh, ride director Michael Mann is one of Robert De Niro's favorite directors. Keanu Reeves, fresh off his role in Speed, turned down the role of Chris Sihirilis to do Hamlet on stage. That's awesome. Go for you, man. You're a great actor. Go for it. <laughs> I, I, that, that, Hamlet that, or he? Think about it. Still, though, like, go for it. That's you want to be an actor on stage? Go for it, man. I, if you can, if you can make that work in your life, go for it. I, I, yeah. It's not always about the money. Or Doc Kilmer protecting $40 million. Of course it's about the money. <laughs> uh, during pre-production, weapons trainer Mick Gold related a story from his time in the British Army. While on patrol in Northern Ireland, his Land Rover was ambushed, and he returned fire straight through the vehicle's windshield. This inspired the scene where Neil uh, fires through the windshield of the getaway during the bank shootout. The bank so. shootout. And oh yeah it was also during that scene where they had that first where they were going to sell the documents to back to um, uh, Van Zandt uh, yeah Roger Van Zandt's character too when you're going to do that shit to the van to hit the other driver of the car oh no the, the MP5 guy who has who was like just standing up after getting run over oh my god yeah. so cool this um, movie's so good <laughs> from Al Pacino's line give me that shotgun to Robert De Niro's uh, penultimate line told you I'm never going back Six minutes, 22 seconds elapsed with no dialogue, more than 3.5% of the movie's entire two-hour, 50-minute uh, runtime, which is basically, I mean, that's six and a half minutes. It's heart-pounding. It's awesome. Uh, mm-hmm. According to Val Kilmer's autobiography, his agent tried to convince him not to act in this film because he wouldn't be paid what his stardom was worth by the budget, especially while Kilmer was filming Batman Forever, the highest-grossing live-action film of that year. However... Kilmer insisted on taking the role and asked Michael Mann to compensate him by putting his face on the film's poster, sandwiched right between Al Pacino and Robert De Niro, which Mann happily agreed to do. That's awesome. And also, I love this poster because this is one of yeah. the few posters of human history where the names are actually over the real-life actors. Like, there's Al Pacino on top left with Al Pacino's name on top left, Robert De Niro, then Robert De Niro's name on top right, then Al, and then there, Val Kilmer, right dead in center <laughs> with his name right under his head. It's amazing. I hate that movies, movie posters don't actually do this because of dumb licensing and like contract yeah. agreements. It drives me insane. <laughs> uh, Val Kilmer also stated that the main reason he chose to act in this film was so that he would be able to call Al Pacino and Robert De Niro Al and Bob for the rest of his life. <laughs> 
That's that, that, that's that's a that's a huge perk, you know. Uh, Val Kilmer was so experienced with heavy weaponry and ammunition, having earlier been taught to use all varieties of gun by his father and grandfather in his home ranch and at Juilliard, that he assisted the technical assault team members in teaching the other cast members how to comfortably maneuver and use their weapons during the lengthy practice sessions. So, and it shows you you see how comfortable he is He's doing incredible. that stuff. It's yeah. awesome. All the power in that ponytail. That's all it has. <laughs> A uh, good Hugh ambulance also shows up in the film 19, uh, Speed in 1994. Uh, this was filmed in 95 locations over a period of 107 days. So you're almost like a day oh shooting gosh. at a different place Getting every on a day. bus, going to a different place. Wow. Bus. Oh, my gosh. According to an interview with Michael Mann uh, on, on the rewatchables, Kate Winslet tried out for the role of Lauren Gustafson, which eventually went to Natalie Portman. Uh, the opening armored van heist scene of the film was the major inspiration for the mission Blitz play in the video game Grand Theft Auto V in 2013. In that mission, the protagonist robbed an armored car similar to the style in the style of this film. It, that was actually the initial um, when they were first showing off the game to the press. I remember there's a there's, gosh, you have to dig through an old podcast. Jeff, Gers, Jeff Gersman, the video game reporter, was there doing an initial front, and actually they immediately brought up posters of the movie Heat for us for their main inspiration too. And the first gameplay they ever showed was them doing like a, basically a recreation of the scene where they tip over the heist armored truck with a dump truck with a dumpster immediately there too. So they they that's very much very clear from the initial announcement of that game is like this is what we're doing. We are doing Heat the video game right, <laughs> you know, and. Um, that's what they did. <laughs> uh, Macaulay's 32nd role, which is it's heartbreaking, but it's when Macaulay comes out of the hotel to drive off with Edie. It takes 42 seconds from the time he first sees Lieutenant Hannah to when he turns and runs. It takes Macaulay 12 seconds to assess the situation, and he sees Lieutenant Hannah to when he starts uh, to back away from Eddie, and then 30 seconds to actually leave Eddie behind, which goes yeah. to show um, why that restaurant scene is so important when he tells him, you know, hey, yeah. in your type of work, do you would you ever leave somebody and, love? And he says, and it's you the, have to. It's the mistake he makes too. That that that's what gets him killed is the fact that like the, going back for Wingrow in the first place. He knew he had to leave, but because he had formed those attachments with Val Kilmer's character and the other characters of his crew, like he can't let it rest. He can't let Wingrow's uh, the the betrayal or just like some people out in general stand. He well, has it's like, to go to it's the like anybody that betrays him in this movie, he kills. Yeah, 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 and he has to in a sense of honor. And it's not like. like if he was really sticking to that rule that keeps him alive, that keeps him in the game, like he has to, like he has to acknowledge they broke the rule, but he he doesn't need to be the judge and executioner to know they broke the rule. But he, he needs in to his get mind out. he does. But in his mind he has to do it, and that's what gets him killed right. in this movie for sure. Is him going because they, there they could have left, been, they had everything ready yeah, to go. He could have left. He could have been fine. He could have lived his life in the Bahamas or wherever else he wanted to do as just a you know expatriate and been done. You know, but no, he has to go back. He has to get some form of what justice is in his mind done. So that's that's a really great uh, scene of the film. The current residence of the apartment where Danny Trejo's death scene was filmed and got curious after seeing the film and pulled up the carpet in the room Trejo was shot. To their surprise, they saw that res- res- residue of the theatrical blood still remained. Oh, that's awesome. That is I had awesome. no idea it was a real place. Yeah. An ending oh. discussed featured Neil and Vincent shooting and killing each other instead of Vincent shooting Neil. Michael Mann didn't like this idea and therefore it was not filmed. The ending was later used, though, in Insomnia, also starring Al Pacino, whose character and Robin Williams' character shoot each other in the final fight. I have not watched Insomnia. You've never right seen yet. Insomnia? No, I have not seen Insomnia. It's one of the only, there's two roles that Robin Williams did that were, I would deem him evil. That one, 
and one hour photo. One hour, yep, thank you. Them two are, are That's, you, need, you need to watch it's it. It's rare for Wild Wings. Maybe we'll cover that. Too. Let's cover that. We'll put on the list sometime. Near it's future. The, near future. The Not on the list. Uh, the ending shot at LAX was filmed on an actual approach runway. However, the differences are that lights do not brighten when a plane is approaching. The location has changed a bit, though. The boxes have been removed. The instrument landing system tower on the field has been removed and moved further down the runway, and the runway has been shifted towards the left a bit. The field, however, and the lights are still there. The, I think, um, gosh, I, I haven't read, the, I haven't watched the director's commentary in years, uh, but I believe there's something about Michael Mann specifically doing the commentary track is that uh, he wanted the idea of like after Robert De Niro's character is shot and killed, the lights are like an allusion to his soul ascending to some degree. Um, the soul leaving his body to some degree, and that's why they wanted the film on an, on an LA runway was simply trying to get that shot of the lights up, like ascending up, which is silly, but also that's what he wanted to do, which is interesting. I don't think they did that though. Uh, a few Fine. subtle Thanks, bits Jimbo. of foreshadowing. <laughs> I think everything you say is BS, Kyle. Thanks, Jimbo. <laughs> a few subtle bits of foreshadowing occur when the hockey mask Nils crew wear during the first armored car heist. Of the four robbers who approached the truck, only Shahirlis's, well, which is Val Kilmer's mask, is black, while everyone else wears a white mask. He's the only member of the crew to survive this film. Wangro's mask is shaped differently from the others, with a rounded chin making it closer to appearance to a Jason Voorhees mask. He's ultimately revealed to be a serial killer and rapist. Trejo's face is completely or almost completely out of frame at any point in the robbery while he is wearing a mask, meaning his face is only seen uncovered. His oh, death man. is a mercy killing at Nil's hands. Yeah. So I just got, immediately got caught off of like whether or not Ringo is actually truly a rapist, but I didn't remember that actually the girl is underage when they have sex with the prostitute, so yes, and it constitutes yes. rape in that case. Yeah. And then he kills her anyway, right? Yeah, and he kills her yeah. anyway. Yeah, yeah. But still, uh, the body count in this movie twenty one. Um, oh, another thing I got to drop into like, like a, a part of the realism that kind of breaks in this scene for me is like have a moment where like after that shootout at the bank and then at the grocery store parking lot and like that too, you know, every cop in that scenario is immediately like, okay, you're gun and badge, we need it right now, and then they proceed to get like prone in jail and, dis- and disregarded because like, wait, you had the opportunity to break these guys down to, to to get these guys on a breaking entering to go with that safe and you didn't, and now thirty people are dead after a bank robbery. Like, there's no way there's cop all no, those cops' careers would have been not ended only that, dude, but how traumatized is that girl going to be that Tom Sizemore is carrying and Al Pacino turns around. <laughs> Shoots him while he's carrying her as like a hostage. Wow, she's gonna be scarred for life. And that scene, uh, I I gotta dig into this because we've not. I don't know what I'm doing the podcast, but like that scene and like the violence when it gets to like the grocery store parking lot specifically, like the amount of people who are willing like lying dead because they got in the criminal's way. That's the the moment where I think it actually switches. Where like you want to root for Robert De Niro's character, you want to root for the criminal um, group to kind of succeed in this film, but it isn't until that scene in the grocery parking lot where you realize like, hey, they want to get away without committing anyone, but if anyone gets in their way, they will do anything necessary they think they need to do to get out of there, including just shooting at random pedestrians on the street who are just having to be. But, in their but way see, at that I, time. I I don't you know if you can blame it on them because the cops are firing on them too, so but, it's just as much yeah, the cops' fault as it is because the criminals wouldn't be firing back if the cops weren't chasing them let's be honest yeah yeah absolutely but like the, the cops when they're going to you know when they were they're going to fire at the criminals they look downwind to make sure they couldn't possibly hit someone else outside of them when the criminals shoot they they shoot indiscriminately they shoot anyone in their way to get away the best way possible and they will not stop they won't you know to them it's everything like they don't care about the human lives that are cost them to get out of there they will get out of there no matter what in their mindset and that's the moment where i feel like it swaps where like 
um, in this Devil's Dilemma kind of thing like that, you still you think you have to side of Al Pacino's character and the police um, stopping them because they need to be stopped. Otherwise, too many innocent people will die. And that's where kind of the horror in the film kind of gets a little bit injected into it. Well, this is not a horror film, obviously. But there is a horror in the film where it's like, you know, um, if I'm in this film, I'm not one of the thieves, you know, trying to escape. I'm not one of the cops shooting people down. I'm one of the guys laying dead in the grocery store parking see, lot. see, I'm going to have to disagree with you there because when, when De Niro and him go to the bank, De Niro says, look, we do not want to hurt anybody here. We're yeah. not taking your money. We're taking the bank's money. It's insured. You're fine. We don't want to hurt anybody. We don't want to kill anybody. Yeah. And they don't. But it's clear. They're willing not to stop at nothing, though, because like there's plenty of people dead in the streets of that grocery parking lot if they got in their way, and that's what they, that was the cost of But them. you don't know if you it's know? from them or if it's from the cops. It's from the criminals. You think so? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I think I it's totally think so. from the criminals. Right. And even like Al Pacino, before they ended the scene, before they entered the scene to break them down, he says, he, he gives lines to the matter of like, watching where you fire and watching where you're aiming to make sure you're not hitting civilians in the way too. The cops are taking active effort to not kill people in their way, whereas the, co- whereas the criminals are acting in complete disregard specifically to create the kind but of like... But then again, you know, it's Kyle, it's like it's like when um, when cops start chasing after criminals on a high-speed chase. Yeah. What do they do 90% of the time? What do you mean? Okay, well, okay. Yeah, explain to me. The cops call off the high speed especially if it's on a, a motorcycle or something mm. or, or the high speed because it's endangering the public yeah if they would have backed off here it wouldn't have been like that there wouldn't if they would have backed off even before they made it to the grocery park scene or the grocery scene uh, parking lot it wouldn't have been as bad as you're claiming because you're saying because of that moment yeah because the cops still followed them then that's when things turn bloody hmm there's no reasonable moment to necessarily back off there before you know they actually are still loose because right now because like in that moment there's still guys of M16s running around in the streets with guns it's not like a high speed pursuit where like you know the amount of damage that could be done and how well you could actually stop them there's a lot more of a reasonable moment where you know like I if I don't let him off then I then he will endanger more people um, this is a case where if I let him off I think they could still be killing a lot of people going in there getting in their way or something like that too random people random pedestrians with the security guard people who stop there and see a guy with a gun and now it's like oh they're a witness I better shoot him dead well I guess we Go back to the first armor high scene that one guy does start killing him. Yeah. Why right. did he end up start killing him? Because the guy tried to he shoot him. He kept staring at him. Right? He kept staring at him. Yeah. That's the only reason why. Yeah, okay. So yeah. I see your point there. Yeah. Kyle's okay. right for once, maybe. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll have to think about it a little bit more, but we'll, we'll give him this one. Uh, Michael Mann pressured Val Kilmer to uh, visit Folsom State Prison so that he could get further into the character of Chris Shalerless, who was envisioned to have done time there. Though Kilmer initially balked at the idea because half of the film was shot. He finally agreed and was so affected by the uh, the despair and angst-filled atmosphere that he agreed man was right before or about this activity for his personal research. He then reflected upon his visit to Folsom in the last few scenes in which his character is forced to leave his wife, knowing the alternative of prison, if he doesn't, um, while also regretting the fate that he has left her to, because they're going to lock her up as an accomplice or whatever, and they're going to um, put their son in. Uh, no, she's not an accomplice. She, like, she's willing to go and get away. She's not an accomplice in any way, in matter of that form. But she is traumatized for life. Well, they know? did tell her. They said, look, if you don't do this... We're going to get you for uh, abating and whatever. Oh, and, they're, and they're going to take their son and put him in foster care or whatever, remember? Sorry, I thought you were talking about Robert De Niro's girlfriend in the film. Not, no, not, no. not Val Kilmer's girlfriend in the film. Uh, gosh, I have to go back to what you said now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so yeah, I understand what you mean there. But yeah, even then, um, not selling her because, out. Because, you know? well, in her not selling him out because when she sees him and she goes out on the balcony and she just gives that hand signal like, just 
go. You go. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, and she comes in and says it's not him. You know, yeah. I, I mean, that, and, and it's just breaking Val Kilmer's heart, you can tell. Oh, yeah. And they even stop him at the end of the street, remember? They're like, check him out anyway. They yeah. stop him, and he's had that fake ID and his plans and all that stuff. So he yeah. got away with it. And he's like the only one out of everybody that probably got away with it in this yeah. movie. Yeah, and it, it is a credit to her acting work there because, like, there's not much, and I feel like in the script of Michael Mann's script there of the character to actually say, like, why she'd be um, um, twist, she'd be. Um, She'd be willing to possibly sacrifice everything to help him save him out, but she plays the role so well she actually sells it, whereas the other female characters in this film, I don't feel like they really are um, uh, fleshed out in the way she is in this film. Um, In August 2022, Mm -hmm. Michael Mann released a novel that served as a prequel and a sequel to the events portrayed of this film. The novel gives background on how Macaulay, uh, Shirellis, and uh, Cerrito pulled previous jobs in Chicago. It also tells how Shirellis met Charlene in Vegas, so I don't know if that means before or after, and how Macaulay was uh, formerly in a relationship with a woman, uh, and his is resulted in his 32nd rule. Yeah. I haven't read the book yet, but I... What's it called? Do you know? It's called Heat 2. Just straight up Heat 2. Oh, is it? Yeah, it's called Heat 2, and the audiobook comes out later this year, and I, pre- oh. I pre-ordered that. I was going to listen to that sometime. Nice. But I'm also curious why that needed to be a... Uh, I'm surprised he just didn't do another film. Instead, he actually just wrote a sequel in a book form. That's the only way he feel like he could do it. Right. So that's interesting there, too. Well, I mean, especially with Val Kilmer's... Well, still... Know. But there's also a reality where like you could have been like, hey, we recast all the same characters, but they're still the same characters. Yeah, just that, I just don't think it would have the same, you know... Impact. Yeah. I understand what you mean. All right, yeah. Kyle. That's the end of my notes. Tell me what you think of Heat. This film is a basically a 10 out of 10. This is a film that's in the league of its own where like every other film that we talk about being the best movie of all time, this movie goes right in there of that group of films that are just like, this is movie, movie, movie. This is this is what it is. When you go to the top tier of movies, Heat's just in there. Just simple. You can't you can't uninclude it. You can say movies better, you can say movies your personal favorite. That's great. But when you go to top tier movies, this is in there. Heat is that. You know, Heat is like, you know. Alien 1, Back to the Future Trilogy, those kind of movies where it's just like, this is the movie you go to when you go to watch movies. This is what cinema is made for in many respects. So this is one of the best movies of all time. I love it on a personal level. I think Albertine and Robert De Niro's performance is amazing. Val Kimmer's performance is amazing. That ponytail rocks the world. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, the scene craft, the set designs, everything about it is just going full tilt all the way, guns blazing. It has some of the best sound design of cinema history. Um, and uh, everything about it is just five stars all the way through. So this is um, a, a movie all cinema fans should watch, just bar none. This is this is this is it. This is what movies are made for, in every respect. And I can't can't say that enough. So yeah, this is a film everyone watches. If you watch films, you must watch Heat, and uh, at least once. You know, um, maybe it's not for, maybe it's not your cup of tea, but regardless, you can't deny its greatness in many respects. So yeah, this is one of the best films of all time. Jimbo, how do you feel about it? Well, uh, let me start off by saying this. Um, Al Pacino's character annoys me to death in this film, <laughs> and and it, and it's in a good way because yeah. he is just so wrapped up in his work, and he's just he just always like like he's on edge, you know what I mean? Like like always on edge, and he just talks about you know how Al Pacino talks about, and then you got Robert De Niro's character. He's just he's just sleek. He's cool. He's calm. He's just got a plan he he's knows. so cool all the time he is cool as ice i mean he's he's awesome Iceman. and then you got then you got val kilmer's character dude and he the way that he acts in this movie is superb i don't know why he didn't win an award for like a best supporting actor or mm-hmm. something for this movie but we as we stated we saw all the things and kyle this is one of the only times i believe that we have ever given a 10 out of a 10 movie 
Um, I think this is a 10 as well. Uh, it's a long movie, but uh, and it is radar. There is some language in here, uh, but the, the story that it shows at the same time between cop and robber, a good guy, bad guy, they're the same people, just doing it different ways. Yeah. They've both had failed marriages. They uh, and I think it's really touching that at the end of this movie, Al Pacino and his wife, hmm. the daughter, has com- tried to commit suicide, and yeah. they go to the hospital and they're there. And the, you know, he's like, "Hey, I'm here for you," you know. And, and he's like, "Should I call the, the real dad?" She's he's like, uh, his wife's like, "No, she chose you, yeah, and that you've been there for." Her. And so basically, they're they're oh going to end gosh. up, you know, yeah. working out. And then he then he sees and he's like. You know, she's like, you got to go. And he's like, yeah. She's like, just go. We'll, we'll talk this out. And it's such a gripping moment of the film right there because you see Pacino that she's willing to make that sacrifice. She knows what he has to do. She knows the line of work he's in. But yet she knows that he, she's the one that he wants there with her family. Even after everything they went through this whole entire movie, um, if you watch this, you can slowly see their relationship downgrade. Mm-hmm. Um, and that little girl loves him. Um, and, and, and it's 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 yeah. it's tough to watch. Yeah, it is. It is, it is difficult to watch. Uh, and I, I know we've skimmed over a lot of stuff, and that's one of the scenes that we haven't talked about. But it's a very – with him and his wife are sitting there in the ER, um, and he's carrying her body because he finds her in the bathtub, you know, and he's carrying her in because the wife's there like, hey, where's this? And yeah. he's carrying her in. He's like, hey, I want a doctor. I want a hemoglobist or whatever. Yeah, the whole I thing. Want the, I want them all. Yeah. And it, like, it rewards repeat viewing too, because like it's like it shows like how one track his mind is when he walks into an apartment, but he's thinking about the heist so much. That he walks into his apartment, he doesn't even notice the carpet being wet from the bathtub overflowing right. from the bathroom. He just walks right by it, talks on his phone for a little while, and he isn't until after he closes the phone and takes a breath that he realizes like, oh, the bathroom's flooded. The entire carpet is spilled out for it. He actually barges in and finds that Nellie Foreman had tried to commit suicide by near a wrist in the bathtub. It's just heart wrenching, and then, oh. like it's, it, but it's also such a summation of his character. He is so on track of like being a cop. He has no time for anything else in his life, including his stepdaughter com- trying to commit suicide. Right. It's heartbreaking for his character in so many respects. Well, that, and then nice. I also think the ending scene where they're having that shootout and the mm-hmm. lights light up, and Pacino ends up shooting De Niro, and De Niro, you know, he says, "I told you, I'm not going back," and he reaches out his hand, mm-hmm. basically, and and Pacino grabs it like a handshake, almost. Like yeah. they respected each other, yeah. but I won't let you die alone. That right. one, that that one small gift he can actually give him of a, of a moment of human compassion. Powerful, Jeez. powerful film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ten out of ten. I highly recommend everybody watch this at least once. Um, if you like good, shoot 'em up. And that that's that bank robbery scene, that shootout that lasts for about ten minutes. Uh, Val Kilmer, if you watch him when he's seeing people and he, he's on the door and he's shooting one way, he turns and shoots the other way. Goes back and forth, and Swaps he reloads his clip like, yeah. like he's done it a thousand back. times. Oh, it's beautiful yeah. cinema. So yeah, this gets a Jimbo and Kyle two thumbs up. Definitely give it a watch. So, well, Kyle, this has been a little bit of a longer episode, but I think we wanted to do it justice because it is such a great movie. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, Twelve Angry Men is probably the only other ten out of ten movie that I can think of off the top of my head, but this one's probably up there, so mm-hmm. or it is up there. Yeah. So if you want to follow us on the social medias, we are the Tragedy of Cinema Podcast. Uh, email the tragedy cinema gmail.com if you want to leave a review um, on Apple uh, Podcasts, mm-hmm. Spotify, wherever we will read it on the air. 
Um, any last thoughts, Kyle, before we move on? Uh, nope, no last thoughts from me, Jimbo. I think we're ready to carry it out. So that's a wrap and cut. Uh-huh.